Hello and welcome to series two of the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And since then, I've made it my mission to make the most of each and every passing day. This has led me to cycle on a tandem from Bristol to Beijing. COVID got in the way and I had to take a break, but now I'm back on the road. Welcome to this very special Christmas edition of Facing Up. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to the person who originally cycled from Bristol to Beijing, and that is Josh Day. I didn't realize it at the time, but in fact, I'm following in Josh's tire marks in the the, the asphalt and the sand. Josh left for Beijing on the 15th of May, 2017, and he got to Beijing just under two years later on the 10th of May, 2019. Along the way, he covered 25,500 kilometers going through 26 different countries. And throughout this conversation, I'm so excited, really fascinated to compare and contrast our experiences of what Josh experienced across the whole route, what I've already sampled and found and what I can learn from Josh and where our similarities and where our differences lie. Josh, it is so fantastic to have you here on the Facing Up podcast. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, to get things going, I'm going to ask you the question that I know I've got asked a ton of times and you've also no doubt been asked. You were working, you just finished your time doing a grad scheme as a data consultant for BAE Systems. You had this, I imagine, very comfortable and set trajectory ahead of you of climbing the career ladder, getting some financial security. And instead, you decided to cycle from Bristol to Beijing. And I should say on a bicycle and not a tandem. That is one difference we'll give you for free. Why did you decide to cycle to Beijing? Yeah, good question and common question, as you say. Yeah, you're right. I had quite a settled life in, in London um, beforehand. I, I think like most people in their sort of early 20s, I had an itching to see more of the world. Um, I'd done a, a couple of bike tours in Europe for a week or two, and I absolutely loved them. Just the freedom to go wherever you wanted and sleep wherever you wanted and eat all the food in the world because you're cycling every day. And I thought, well, if I could just do that for every day, then that sounds perfect. I guess throughout my degree and work, they've been quite an intense process. So um, I think there was something of needing a bit of a release from that. And I think all those things sort of came together to, to make me want to get on my bike and, and give it up. And was there anything that pushed you over the edge? Because I, you know, I had these dreams, I wouldn't have got on my bike had it not been for the big upheaval in my life. So many people probably have these dreams in the back of their mind. What was it that pushed you over the edge to go, actually, this is a great idea. And I'm going to do it. I think it just got to the stage of I was trying desperately to think of reasons not to do it in a way because I, I I wanted to go on this ride but of course you used to say well you know it's not a very sensible thing to do I need to do my career etc and then just after my grad scheme I was offered another job at another company 
And that, in some ways, strangely enough, was the tipping point because I thought, well, hold on, if I can get another job now, I could probably get another job in a year's time when I go home, when I've finished cycling. It's not going to be the end of the world if I come back a little bit skint having gone on a big cycle. So there's really nothing stopping me. And then the other thing was my work were very generous in that they gave me a sabbatical for my years and years of service. Um, <laughs> Three years, so right? So they, they, yeah, t- two and a half years. And they said, um, yeah, you can take a year off, do your cycling, get it out of the way and then come back. So really, I, after that, I had no excuse. I had to do it. So it sounds like you really got provided with a safety net and there was a big sense of security that this wasn't going to derail your career. But I'm finding it interesting that it's this job offer that is the decision point. It kind of clarifies, you know, do it, it forces you to make a decision rather than exactly. sleepwalking. That's what it seems exactly. like why that was important. Yeah, that, that's that's a really good way of putting it. Exactly. Sometimes you just need this trigger to, to actually make you make a decision okay, am I just going to do the career thing or am I going to take some time out to do it? And the job offer was the, was the catalyst for that. Yeah, absolutely. What were your expectations when you set out? Were you planning to do it for two years? I wasn't planning for two years. I thought a year would be long enough to cycle to Beijing. It probably is if you go the direct route, to be fair. My expectations were completely open. I mean, I chose Beijing not for any particular love of um, Chinese food or China, but just because I thought, well, it's a long way away. It's on the other side of the continent. If I go there, I'll have had a good adventure along the way. It sort of seemed the natural choice to me somehow, like heading east. You're more likely to have tailwinds. Um, I, I don't know why it, it, it jumped out at me as, as something very obvious. But in terms of what I expected along the way, I mean, I had no idea, really. I, I thought I'd just point my wheels east, start cycling, have a few campsites along the way, see a few uh, nice cities, meet some interesting people and, and see what happens, really. Which I should imagine is probably similar to you, setting out or, or, or not quite. Yeah, I think... Oh, it's, it's an interesting one because on one hand, I was very open in that I was doing this because to me, this is a way that I think I'm going to have fun, a really interesting set of experiences, both highs and lows. So it's certainly not just like a, a holiday in that sense of sitting, drinking cocktails on the beach. <laughs> I guess that might have happened at some point, but it might happen in the future. Certainly the cocktail drinking bit has already happened. But I also had like a lot of aspirations for it. There was so much I wanted to achieve through this ride in terms of it didn't happen initially, but sharing the ride with other people, sharing a message that to me was very important. So I had aspirations on what that might achieve. And then like the clash between that and then what actually starts happening on the ground and the reality of trying to achieve those expectations Mm. and how that affects the cycle ride. So that was quite big for me. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think your your ride has a bit more purpose, shall we say, than uh, just vaguely cycling east. Uh, not that there's one better or the other, but um, I think from my point of view, my expectations were just like, well, we'll see what happens. Mm. And that was the exciting part, really. Well, I think that's it. It's, it's a different purpose rather than a better or worse one. And sometimes mm. when you go in with a very open mind, it allows you to go down avenues that you could have shut off if you went with a very specific purpose. And one of the things I've been learning is how important 
to just say, oh, wait, you know, all these things I thought I might want to do it like this. Actually, it doesn't really make sense. And for me, the classic example is that pre-lockdown, it was very important for me to have that backseat of the tandem filled as much of the time as possible. And it was amazing that there are so many different people who wanted to come out and join, but that put a huge logistical strain on knowing exactly when I had to be at which airport and for how many days that person was going to join for, and everything had to be planned out a month in advance. And that just throttled any spontaneity and flexibility. And that's completely changed since the restart. And it's just opened up so many other opportunities. Yeah, I think um, from my point of view, I had a similar sort of epiphany, perhaps, when I got to Kazakhstan and I couldn't get a Chinese visa. And it's like, okay, well, what can I do? Hold on. Up there in Russia, the World Cup's happening. I'll get a ticket for the World Cup. That will be my visa in, into Russia and I can go around China. And suddenly, by the end of the trip, sort of Russia was probably the, the most important place in the whole trip. I mean, I learned Russian. I got to know Russia as a country, which I had no intention of doing when I left. I mean, Russia wasn't even on the radar when I when I left the UK. So yeah, I, th I think it's really important in my ride to, to have that flexibility and the spontaneity to, to just follow the winds, as it were. And being open to those opportunities that come along. And I think your example of Russia, you know, a place that you weren't even expecting to go, then becomes such a central part and such a positive part. Is there a time that sticks in your mind when you realise that at an earlier point in the ride, you would have just carried on going, you decided that this is your destination and no matter what, you're going to get there. And then some point later in the ride, you're like, oh, wait, no, something interesting is happening. I'm just meeting this person. I'm just going to chuck out those plans and see where the day takes me. I guess there were two main places where my, my mindset changed from the first mindset of right let's get it done to the mm. second mindset of let's be a bit more flexible i think when i got to turkey that was definitely a big change in mentality i mean i kind of hammered it across europe not quite transcontinental style but still i was i was really quite head down let's get to istanbul let's get out of out of there let's get on to beijing and really that sort of short-term thinking like what am i doing the next few days one week two weeks i guess because at the start of the ride the longest bike tour i'd done before that was two weeks so you know a three-week ride seems like a lifetime but then you get to turkey and it's quite a big country so cycling faster on any particular day isn't really going to speed turkey up you still got to cross the whole thing in your mind you still got to equate i'm going to be here for a month or whatever it is no matter what even if i butcher myself on the bike it's going to be three weeks so you've got to deal with eating in turkey yeah exactly that's that's it and the mindset of just right let's hammer it every day just doesn't help that much and then the second occasion was when I got to Kazakhstan. I'd arrived in winter, so I had a bit of a hibernation there for three months. And it was at that point I finally quit my job. So I was on this sabbatical for a year. And I phoned up and said, look, yeah, kind of like the cycle touring. I think I'll stick at it for a few more uh, months, maybe years. <laughs> and quitting my job was, I guess, the final tie that was holding me back to home and putting any sort of time pressure on this ride. So once that tie was severed, it was really like, well, okay, let's see where I want to go. I can go wherever I want. Mm. So there, there were kind of the two biggest changes in my mentality, I guess. 
I think that's so interesting in what you're saying, particularly about you know, to start with gunning across Europe, because I've done the same when I've done similar sort of two week cycle tours on my road bike you know, in Spain and France. And there becomes a very reassuring safety net that your purpose is tied up in reaching your destination. It makes your life very straightforward. It makes every decision, you know, every kind of bit of uncertainty, like, oh, I, that guy just waved at me, but I need to reach my destination. You know, mm-hmm. like, oh, that looks like a nice cafe. Ah, oh, but, you know, I've got another five hours on the bike. It's a very, it's quite comforting in a way to have all your existence justified in that one very concrete aim. And it's only now I've realized how limiting that is. Absolutely. And it's the funny thing with goals is even if they're completely arbitrary, like Beijing, if you set them, they still have this power over you to make you do things that you you might not otherwise do or keep keep you going. So the fact that I said Beijing, it was completely arbitrary. I could have chosen anywhere. I could have chosen Vladivostok. And the fact that I still had to get there meant, okay, even when I cross Russia, and I'd gone through Siberia in sort of November, December, and it was horrible and it was cold and it was, you know, tough. Siberia in winter. We are coming back to this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just drop that one in there. Casual. But I got to Vladivostok and that would have been the natural end point for the ride. I'd done this amazing hard thing and I'd got through it. And then that would have been the natural ending to the ride. But because I'd said Beijing, I had to go. You know, I had to do the extra bit. Conversely, it meant that by the time I got to Beijing and the goal had been done, even though it was completely arbitrary, that was it. I I felt like, well, yeah, job done. And suddenly from going like I could ride for months and years and let's go around the world. As soon as I got to Beijing and was finished, it was suddenly like, okay, well, well, I'm done now. I don't need to do it anymore. How do you look back on that? The fact that you'd reached Beijing seems like it quite abruptly brought this cycle ride to an end when at one point it sounds like your horizons were like, oh, I could just carry on and on. No, absolutely. I mean, almost throughout the whole ride, I thought I'll get to Beijing and then I'll carry on around the world. Mm. I mean, cycle touring at its heart is basically low level discomfort, isn't it? <laughs> you're, uh, you're, you're not sleeping in a bed. You're in a in a tent oh god i've been doing it wrong you're eating a lot but well yeah i've been doing it wrong i've been cheating most of the last few weeks months (laughs) to be fair winter ukraine i think that's justified but um (laughs) yeah so you're not sleeping amazingly you're eating a lot you're outside all the time i think there's a sort of lot of low level discomfort that is easy to ignore when you're chantering along fine but as soon as you have a reason not to do it anymore like reaching your arbitrary destination Mm. suddenly the thought of living in a tent again for months on end just suddenly didn't appear it was almost an overnight thing Mm. which i was really surprised at interesting i really want to ask you about what you think the purpose of a goal is because you know so often right now we live in a goal orientated world Mm. to to get promoted or you know to run a a pb in a race or to learn a a new recipe or to get a certain salary whatever it is we're quite goal orientated get that project done get a high mark in an exam we live in a goal orientated world you set yourself the goal of beijing as well what purpose does a goal serve for you i think for me without them i I wouldn't i wouldn't be doing anything Mm. really i mean i i need that motivation just to push me along to actually do something 
And the times when I'm training or when I'm doing anything and I've got a goal in mind, I think most people are like this. They perform a lot better when they have something in mind. I I think most sports psychologists would agree with that. The weird thing for me about goals is that I think a lot of the time, if I know I can do it, then they're not useful to me anymore. So a goal is all about setting something that I don't know I can do. So on this ride that started off as, okay, let's go to Beijing, because I wasn't sure if that would be possible. During the ride, when I got to the Permit Highway in sort of November... That's Tajikistan, right? Middle of Central Asia, freezing cold, 5,000 metres. Yeah, it's a road that goes up to sort of, yeah, three and a half, four, four and a half thousand metres. So I ride there in November, and I had a decision, either I do it now or I don't do it, basically, or I have to wait until next spring or something. So I set this goal of, okay, let's do the Pamir Highway in winter because I didn't know I could do it. The same thing when I got to Russia. Okay, I've got back into Chitar. It's the middle of October. This is in the middle of sort of Siberia. I need to get to Vladivostok. Am I going to take the train? I don't know if I can cycle. Let's set the goal of doing it and find out, basically. Mm. And then as soon as I know I can complete a goal, it kind of loses it, its power. So... Once I got onto China mainland, there was nothing stopping me from getting to Beijing. So it didn't have the same power as it had before. So a goal for me is really, A, to motivate myself to do something in the first place, but B, to say, okay, well, what can't I do that I'd like to try and do? I love what you're saying here about setting a goal to get you to do something that you don't know if you can do. And that's sort of a purpose of you setting a goal to extend yourself beyond where you currently are now and providing the motivation for that. What I find is quite interesting as well is because one of the conclusions I've come to in the purpose of setting goals, and it's kind of like you said already, you know, it's it's arbitrary. Basically every goal, mm-hmm, exactly. any goal when you come down to it is arbitrary. So part of the conclusion I've come to on this is that it's what journey do I want to set out on? What do I want my day-to-day existence to be And hopefully, you know, it's going to be an enjoyable and enriching one that's going to challenge me in different ways. So I'm not going to just sort of get up and start having an enriching, interesting time because I decide I want that. You need to set a goal that sets you on that path, but then it's not the goal that matters. It's not Beijing that matters. It is really what happens on the way on a day-by-day basis and trying to be in the present and enjoying that. But I love what you're saying as well, that actually provides motivation and it extends not simply to what you can do, but beyond that as well. And so it challenges you. I think that's really nice. I really like what you just said, actually, that it's about setting how you see your life being. Because, yeah, I, I guess on, on the one hand, I like the idea of cycling every day and cycling as far as I want it and living that kind of cycle-touring lifestyle. Mm. So what goal would you need to set to enable that? Well, choose a destination on the other side of the world to cycle to. And that will mean, as a consequence, you will be living this ideal lifestyle of cycling every day, which is what I wanted at the time. We talked a bit about, or you mentioned already about the the low-level discomfort of cycle touring. And you also just dropped in that you happen to cycle through Siberia in winter. I've lived in Siberia. I was very glad of my thick jacket and an apartment which had central heating. Tell me about the physical challenge and maybe the mental challenge that went with it of cycling through Siberia in minus, what, 25? 
colder than yeah. that uh, in in winter well it's not warm as you can imagine so from the physical side of things the hardest thing for me is in those sort of cold temperatures your body just has to heat you the whole time basically so you're forever burning a stupid amount of calories just to keep your body warm let alone you know cycling however far each day just being outside is quite exhausting in the first instance so the biggest physical challenge almost certainly was getting enough food in in the middle of nowhere so um i was living off gretchka which you might know it's sort of buckwheat that you put boiling water in and it expands it's pretty tasteless but it's exactly um, what i was gonna say and even salt doesn't make it any less tasteless <laughs> salt maybe cover it in mayonnaise that's what they are uh, oh, in russia um Ooh. and then for a treat a bit of sausage or uh, half an onion or something so not the best yeah you really splashed a... out there <laughs> <laughs> well yeah so um that's, that's more than low level discomfort isn't it so that's the first thing the second thing is just the cold just makes everything take so much longer uh, which was the, what I didn't really appreciate so you're getting up in the morning and your hands are freezing so trying to strike the tent or light a fire or cook breakfast or you know fix a puncture is just about the worst thing in the world because your hands are freezing everything takes ages there's snow everywhere and nothing of this is kind of really designed to work in these low temperatures like how did you stay warm because i've just cycled across ukraine it's at times been minus down to minus 5 with another minus 5 of wind chills so about minus 10 you know my hands mm. were freezing you know when i was trying to as soon as i got out the tent in the morning i wanted to go back inside for the whole day my face was cold my hands were cold and it seemed like they would never warm up again but I mean, you know, but what I was doing was kind of piffling compared to what you were doing and you were doing it for days and days and days on end. Yeah. It's... How did you sustain that? <laughs> well, a lot of layers certainly helped to start with. I think on my hands, I had three pairs of gloves on at three. most times. So one under glove and then a mitten on top of that and then a waterproof mitten on top of that. On my base i had warm cycling tights and then trousers on top of those thick fur lined boots and um, generally two or three pairs of socks as well so I layer those up on the top base layer cycling jersey fleece and then a buffalo jacket on top of that the trick is with winter cycling is not to sweat because as soon as you sweat it will freeze and then it'll make you even colder so it's all about chuntering along at quite a slow pace not really stopping much cuz you'll get cold if you stop but just going along at a slow pace and when you're cycling you should be warm or not freezing when you're cycling so the trick is to do that as much as you but as soon as you stop yeah exactly so do that as much as you can don't stop and just chunter along so from a physical point of view that's how i dealt with that i know what you mean about trying to do all that on your own is just a whole nother kettle of fish really um so i did this ride mostly by myself i mean i occasionally met other strange cycle tourists on the way and, and we cycled together but mostly i was more than happy with my own company but siberia was the one time where i really 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 did wish i had someone with me just to share those tasks so you know i could build the fire while my friend is cooking dinner or striking the tent or and also from the motivation as well 
someone else to be able to say, come on, Josh, now we actually do need to get on today. You can't just lie in a sleeping bag all morning waiting for the sun to warm up because it's not going to happen. So, yeah, being your own motivator in those situations is is tricky. Also. Yeah. Well, you know, I've just gone across Ukraine into these absolutely vicious headwinds. It's the worst that I've ever mm. faced, 20 mile an hour things. And it was just solidly blowing for two weeks without any let up. And I was going at about six miles an hour. Um, yeah. So, yeah. you know, pretty, pretty slow by, I think, pretty much anyone's standards. And for such a long time, I was so frustrated at the situation that I should be cycling at 12 or 13 miles an hour, not six. Mm -hmm. And I was so cold and it wasn't supposed to be like this. This was supposed to be a flat, easy leg over to Mariupol. It took me such a long time to get my head around the fact this was just the situation. But how did you manage that when... And I guess like in life, you know, so often there are things that come along and we're like, oh, well, this wasn't part of the plan. Why am I now working 12 hour shifts or finishing at 10 o'clock each night? Or I've got a long, long commute and that wasn't part of the plan. And it's so easy to be annoyed and frustrated and say, well, why has my life taken a hit in quality? So how did you manage that? Yeah, there's nothing more annoying than thinking it's not fair. It's it's, it's, uh, such a annoying emotion to have and I completely sympathize with with that I've had sort of similar days in Kazakhstan and Mongolia where you just you're in a headwind all day and like you say the the importance is just to switch the mentality so just to wake up in the morning see it's a block headwind and be able to accept fine I'm not going to do 100 kilometers today I'm just going to be happy that I'm on the bike every kilometer I do today is going to be a win because of the situation. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate that by the time I'd got to Russia, you know, I'd had a year, over a year of cycle touring in the books already. So I had all that to build on. So I, I'd had the days in Kazakhstan where, you know, I'd cycled six miles an hour for 10 hours or something. Or I'd had the days in Mongolia where there was supposed to be a tarmac road and I was going to get um, a lot of kilometers done. And then it turns out to be sand and I'm pushing all day. So you're pushing the bike. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) I mean, Mongolia roads is, um, is a good training for acceptance because you'll just be happy with the smallest of mercies. It's like, okay, well it's, it's a pothole tarmac road. Okay. Well, at least it's not gravel. All right. It is gravel road. Well, at least it's not sand. (laughs) Oh, well, it is a sand (laughs) road. Well, at least it's not raining. You know, that was good training for accepting the situation and i think that's such an important thing that i've come to realize that acceptance is the first step into changing your mindset into making appreciating the situation that you're in because for as long as you say this isn't how it should be then it gives you all this like room for this frustration and this resentment and this self-pitying but when you say okay this is what it is i now have this choice of do i want to enjoy the bits that I can enjoy or Mm -hmm. do I just say right woe is me but when you change those expectations say okay you know what getting back to my my house at seven o'clock this evening oh that's just not gonna happen yeah but maybe I can listen to a good podcast on the you know the ride back or the, the the car journey back or the commute back and it's not the commute that I wanted but actually I'm going to enjoy it as far as I can given that's the situation I'm in 
Yeah, no, you're, you're dead right. That's the most important step, I think, is accepting the situation that it is and accepting when you can't change anything about the situation. Mm. I mean, it's it's an off-quoted line, but control the things that you can control and accept the things that you can't. That's a good recipe for cycling in headwinds, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, I'm going to do my best to take it forward. You know, it's one of those things that's very easy to say, but in yes. the moment... Oh, that's when it's difficult. Yeah, exactly. And and it only comes after a while. I mean, I would probably suggest that back at, when I was in Turkey or Western Europe, I was completely the same. I would just get so annoyed. You know, a puncture or a headwind would be the end of my day and I'd be grumpy for the rest of the day. So <laughs> um, it doesn't doesn't come quickly. Mm. And ooh, I'm, I'm really tempted. I, I kind of want that. Yeah, I'm going to ask now, you know, how has that attitude those Mongolian quicksands, essentially. How has that then impacted on the way that you live your life afterwards now? Yeah, that's, I mean, everything seems quite easy by comparison. Does <laughs> I've it? I've got to say, uh, well, I think so. I would have thought quite quickly you get back to the point of going, oh, my, my coffee's cold. What the hell's going on here? <laughs> Trite example. I mean, I, I, I still do that and at work. So I'm, I'm working a nine to five job now. Um, at the NHS, which is can be a little bit stressful, but I think it's the difference between being stressed in a moment versus allowing that stress to take over your day and your mood for the whole evening. And of course, I still get angry and annoyed, and everyone does that. But it's having that only last for five ten minutes rather than five ten hours, five ten days, you know. So, yeah, absolutely. It's one thing that I've realized a lot. And when I've been on bike rides as well in this country, since I've been back, it's been raining the whole day. And it's like, well, could be worse. <laughs> could be snowing. <laughs> so it's definitely something that I've taken with me mm. coming back into my normal life, my quote unquote normal life. Mm. What about the mental challenges that you must have faced? We've talked a bit about the cold and that sort of relentlessness. There must have been times when the physical side was okay and it was really the mental side that was the one that was the thing you were trying to get through. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I mean, boredom, people don't talk about boredom, but it's definitely a thing, you know, when you're in Kazakhstan or whatever and you've got 1000 kilometers until the capital and you're on one road for the whole time. There's not a lot going on and it does test your mental health a bit, I guess, mental capabilities. So boredom is definitely something that you've got to deal with and, and you've got to be comfortable being with yourself. I think fortunately for me, you know, I had my iPod with me. I had loads of podcasts, audiobooks, that sort of thing. I think now more than ever, there, there are the tools there to deal with boredom on, on a long ride. So boredom is one thing. Loneliness was an interesting one. Rarely did I feel lonely. I was often alone, but rarely did I feel lonely. I mean, the only time that really happened was when I was in Russia, in Siberia, because I think just the mental toll of having to motivate myself every single morning and to be the one to get myself out of bed and to deal with everything that I was dealing with took its toll quite a lot. I was not online that much when I was in Russia, understandably. I mean, my phone didn't really like the cold. I was saving it just in case I needed it in an emergency. So 
didn't have much contact with home. I kind of didn't want to have much contact with home as well, which was an interesting sort of thing, but it was where my mind was at the moment. Why didn't you want much contact with home and friends and family? I think if I'm complaining about being lonely, but at the same time, I really wanted to do this on my own, prove to myself that I could. Mm -hmm. So any asking for help or the phone call home would feel like a bit of a betrayal of that. That's so interesting. Because for me, uh, it's interesting what you've been saying right now of the mental challenges where you've had in particular like loneliness is not something I've had at all so far. If anything, it's been really the reverse. But then also for me, I think nothing of phoning my mom or my friends and I do, you know, I'm constantly on Zoom, probably, you know, on average yeah. three or four times a week. And so I'm always drawing on that support, but it never even occurred to me that I'd be like, this is me doing it independently. And for, in so many ways, I've had help from a lot of people and from the team who brought the Bristol to Beijing to life. But it's so interesting to see there's this very different approach. Yeah. And I would say it wasn't like that the whole time. I mean, during most of the rest of the trip, I would give updates to home. I was writing blogs and things, and I was more than happy to be in touch with home, and, and that was fine. But for some reason, I think it, I went into a sort of different mindset. I was like, right, okay, this is a real challenge, and I'm just going to focus everything on getting through to Vladivostok, and everything else is just going to be superfluous. I don't need to be contacting home or anyone. I'm just going to get my head down and do it which at the time felt like the right thing to do, but in hindsight was almost completely the opposite of the right thing to do because I think I really could have benefited from having a bit more support from home. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because there are times when we want to go out and, as you said before, you prove to ourselves that I can do this. We buy into this idea of to do this properly. I need to be like these polar explorers. I guess I chatted with Penn Haddow on a previous podcast and I think he was just totally alone and to emulate these people almost like to do this the real way we have to do it independent you know completely yeah, solo that, that's the nail on the head I think really because I'd gone into this thinking well this is kind of my Everest moment my Iger moment that I, I need to do it properly and I'm gonna go into that sort of cocoon world so that's exactly it doing it mm. properly was what it was all about. That's something I'm quite on the fence about, to be honest, because on one hand, it's sort of if you can get help from other people, it's going to ease the challenge of it. Then is that going to make you a happier person? Is that going to give you more capacity to talk to people that you meet on the way rather than going, you know, oh, I'm just focused and I don't have the emotional resilience to start up a conversation with a complete stranger? Mm. So to what extent it then limits the richness of the experience but on the other hand there is something that is very strengthening or affirming knowing that actually you can be completely independent and don't need to rely on people but then I guess the question I have in the back of my mind is what toll does that take and how lasting is it yeah I, th I think that's exactly it and because ultimately I didn't need to be cycling there I could have taken a train but if my journey was to go to Vladivostok there are easier ways to do it. So, I mean, we've spoken about this before, but it, it is just entirely arbitrary. But at the same time, if you cycled to France, took a flight to Istanbul, cycled to Turkey, took a flight to Mongolia and cycled across Mongolia and then took a train to Beijing, would you say you've cycled to Beijing? No, you wouldn't. So there has to be a line at some point, doesn't there? And I guess it's all about 
as long as you're happy with yourself where that line is, then that's the, the most important thing. Yeah, it seems like you're hitting on the head there of like the purpose. What am I setting out to achieve? And if that includes being very self-sufficient as something that's really important, then you're going to be contravening that value by reaching out to people. Whereas if you've got a different underlying purpose, then they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. And the rules are completely up to you. I mean, so in, in my situation, if I get help along the road in Russia, that's completely fine. Ah, that's so but funny. it has to be, you know, the sort of natural help, I would say, of, of being <laughs> along the road yeah. um, from friendly Russians. So it's strange how that yeah. how you justify that. I was sort of reflecting on the mental challenges that I've faced so far. Mm. And it hasn't so much been, you know, a, a lack of loneliness. But one of the things that I have definitely faced is choosing to do this on a tandem, particularly since I've restarted. I've been carting a second seat around most of Europe. And a lot of the time, much more than I'd care to admit, really, it's been empty. And mm. I'm struggling with this thing of like, oh, there's this very romantic vision of this ride. We're sharing it with other people, proving together, you know, that you can seize opportunities, what you can do with a cancer diagnosis. And yet the reality, and it's not all the time, but a lot of the time, it's me by myself. And, you know, when I'm asking people to join, am I just trying to justify my own pet project? Those are the mm. doubts that I've got in my mind. From my point of view, it's very great to go on a tandem. I've never ridden a tandem, but I know how heavy my bike was just with one seat. So uh, to take on that extra weight is impressive. I'm quite interested by this tandem. A, because I've never ridden one. And B, because there are a lot of times that I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to just pick someone up along the way? And, and ride with it so maybe that's the romantic nation that has smitten me as well but i could just imagine in mongolia or kyrgyzstan or something and you're just like yeah fancy a ride and people get on but i don't know if it's like that or not well at the beginning i thought i wasn't trying hard enough or i, I was sort of a bit half-hearted in my attempts to welcome people on and after a while i did sort of start like you know i saw someone by the side of the road and i would stop and be like hey do you want to get on and well People will be like, no, you know, I'm fine. Okay. Like, and then you're like, oh, okay, you know. Take the bus. And it's, I hope to be proved wrong. I really, really hope to be proved wrong at a later point. But thus far, the conclusion I've come to is people who have this sort of spontaneity and appetite for an adventure to see some person they'd never expect to see in their life come along, say, do you want to ride? And they're like, yeah. Those people are <laughs> rare, is what I've discovered. But maybe it's also the way I'm approaching this, which could be a big factor as well and being a bit more strategic and giving people some advance notice could yield some more success on this front yeah i think i think there are people there, there's going to be people out there aren't there you just need to find the right groups and the, and the right the right person but, yeah i mean if you ever need a, another pair of legs just let me know absolutely i'm gonna i'm gonna rope you in for sure so i'd quite like to talk a bit about some of the differences i suppose between mm -hmm. our rights and i know you had some questions and so i'd love to hear what your absolutely yeah, yeah well, what, I, where you see them lying so I, I see from the outside looking in three main differences between our rights the first is um the tandem as we discussed the second is sort of the background and, and the purpose and, and the sort of health things and then the third is 
the COVID situation, which I just can't imagine cycle touring in those conditions. I think for a lot of people this year has changed their mentality. Unfortunately, that you know, if you see people in a big group, you're a bit wary, and if you see a stranger, you're a bit wary of sort of talking to them. And on my ride, so much of what made it great was being invited into people's houses or using couch surfing or warm showers or these hospitality sharing websites. So I was kind of wondering how that works with COVID and whether you've been able to experience that, whether it's been uh, possible or not. I mean, that's, that's such a good question. And on the restart of the ride, that was one of the foremost things in my mind. And it was one of the real clinching factors when I decided I had to pack it in. It was because, I mean, to be honest, I had to, I couldn't continue, but I was also like, if I could continue, would I want to? Well, with every cafe, restaurant and theater club place you could meet someone closed. No, I wouldn't. Because as for you, meeting people is such an integral part. Actually, so far, it's been much easier and better than I thought in terms of meeting people. Mm. I thought that people would never invite me into their house to say hello or to stay overnight. I thought that I probably wouldn't ever be able to like visit projects and centers. I have and I can. And of course, we're taking, you know, the sensible precautions. But Mm -hmm. actually, that has still been a very rich part of the ride. I do wonder, you know, in terms of this whole tandem thing, whether people are that much more cautious to join some random Mm. person and whether that's what I've been telling myself of why that hasn't been quite so successful. But actually, in terms of meeting people, it's been a lot easier than I thought. And the situation in Eastern Europe, from what I know of what's happening in the UK, it's just vastly different. It might not be popular to say this, but in a lot of places I've been to, life basically carries on as normal, barring a bit of mask wearing, you know, going into the supermarket and going into a cafe. But you look at some of this and you think, well, that's a very different social norm in the approach to COVID. And I wonder why that is. Is it for economic reasons that the the country can't afford to come to a standstill? Is it because people don't understand? There's certainly some countries I've been to people, there've been perceptions that it's sort of more like just a cold or it's Mm. some sort of control of the people. That's only some of the theories. Some people believe it, some people don't. But on the whole, things have been a lot more relaxed and certainly now what's happening in the UK with this tier four thing, that's so far away from what the situation is in Ukraine. I mean, that's great to hear that you're still having those interactions then, that it's still possible. Because it's one of the things that makes cycle touring just so much better than perhaps other ways of traveling, that it just puts you right in the middle of the real country and exposes you to all that. And I think for me, it was interesting what you were saying about cycle touring earlier, that it's sort of low level discomfort day after day cycling from one place to another. Whereas I see cycle touring as using a bicycle to transport yourself from one group of people to another group of people. And it just sort of happens to be a bike that gets Mm. you there. But the real interest and the real, as you just said, the real exciting part of cycle touring is how it opens you up to these interactions with different people and I think in a way that you would be much more insulated in a car, for instance, or isolated from these sorts of serendipitous events. Yeah, no, absolutely. And thinking back to my time in Europe, you go from, say, Bristol to Istanbul, and those are two very, very different places. Mm. But when you see it as a smudge of going through Europe and you see one 
country to the next. You can see it's all sort of on a spectrum. Mm. Um, and, you know, they're more similar than you think. It's a natural progression. Mm. Um, the, the countries are similar. And you had to change your route. You've already said you didn't even plan to go through Russia. That's something I've had to do because of COVID. That has been a very big impact that when Hungary closed its borders, I had a plan. I mean, it's really not a plan A, it's about a plan F. And that was to go through Ukraine. And then the next day I found out Ukraine closed its borders for a month. So then I had to go back through Austria, through Slovenia, Croatia, and then rejoin the Danube, which I've been following in Serbia. And you know, I've now just got to the end of Ukraine, the eastern end, the borders of Russia is closed because of COVID, um, at least ground movement, and also for Georgia. So the only way I've got ahead of me is to get a ferry across to Turkey and carry on from there. That's been quite easy for me to accept because you've got this whole thing that everyone accepts as, you know, COVID is a big disruptor. Mm. But I'm wondering, you know, for you, when you had to change your route, was that a problem? Because it's, again, one of these things, you know, in life, some diversions are quite easy to take on board. Oh, I didn't think I was going to work in this sector. Yeah. Actually, but now I'm doing renewable energy and I thought I was just going to yeah. be working in advertising, whatever it is. For me, I did really want to see Western China, the Xinjiang region and sort of crossing through there. So that, that was a big disappointment when I couldn't go through there. But heading up to Russia, it was exciting. It was new. I hadn't planned to do it. And I think by that point in my journey, I was much more open to newer things. If it had happened in Europe, I don't think I would have taken it very well. I think I would have been annoyed because I wanted to head across Europe as quick as possible. So it was fortunate where that happened in my journey. But no, I think changing route is annoying. But whatever country you're going to end up in, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Mm. That would be my way of looking at it. I think you're right there that actually it's meant that I've got to go to both Ukraine and Turkey, whereas before I would have only gone to yeah. one. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. So we talked about COVID, which has its limitations, obviously. And then the other main difference, I guess, was is the sort of the, the health thing. And you've come into this in a different preparation than perhaps I did. And it was something that sort of played on my mind while I was cycling in these sort of more remote areas is what if something goes wrong? But that was kind of quite an ethereal thought. It wasn't anything concrete. Whereas I was wondering for you, does it play on your mind at all? Are you worried about something coming up or is it just, it'll be fine. I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. I think I'm more in the camp of crossing that bridge when I come to it. I, I'm aware of the chances or likelihood of potentially something happening regarding a resurgence of, of my cancer during this ride. And that's something that does play on my mind, I suppose. I try not to think about it too much because I know it's not helpful, but sort of, I don't know, times when maybe I've just got like a slight pain in my back and I'm like, oh, is that in my lungs? Or, you know, just occasionally you get sort of slight pains when breathing and it's the sort of thing that you tend to just notice and then ignore and then move on and then for me mm. I guess those things are like oh fuck like is this something right yeah and you know every three months I've been having scans and thank goodness so far they come back clear so that definitely has been a factor but in terms of other medical emergencies that might happen I don't know car crashes or mm. that, that sort of thing I don't tend to think about that I know that there are risks and that could happen, 
maybe I'd be better prepared if I sort of more aware and focused of them, but it's not really, I guess my attitude to life now is, I don't know, bad stuff can happen whether you do all the prep in the world or you do nothing. Mm. Focus on the things that you can control. Don't do anything ridiculously stupid, but also don't let the fear of something happening get in the way of the joy of living. And I think that's probably my attitude that rules out generally and why I'm doing the cycle ride rather than overly worried about COVID, which says, oh, I, I should just never leave the house and I shouldn't. Yeah, no, fair enough. I think that's, that's the best way to be, especially with things like car crashes and accidents on the road. You can't prepare for them. Um, and I think I had the same mentality of that is you always think it might happen, but you don't think it will happen to you. Mm-hmm. But then again, I didn't have any conks, anything concrete that mm-hmm. could have come up. Um, and I guess um, speaking of mentality, I mean, so I turned the tables a bit here, but Go um, for it. Where, where are you looking at the moment? So I found when I was riding, there would always be something on the horizon in terms of a country or a place that was sort of occupying my thoughts as to where I was going next. And that's not to say I didn't enjoy the countries I was in at the time. But for example, when I was in Turkey, I knew, right, I'm going to Georgia next. When I'm in Georgia, the stands were occupying my mind quite a lot. But that was when... I basically knew that I could follow my route. So I was wondering, where's where's your gaze at the moment? Is it to Turkey? Is it beyond? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't think I define it in terms of countries. I think, so first of all, trying to sort of at this point, I, after Turkey, I literally right now, and we're recording this on the what is this, 20th of December, the border to Georgia is closed, the border to Iran is closed. There is actually no onward route from Turkey that is open right, right now. I'm hoping the situation will change in the next the next month. I'm not really thinking too far ahead in those terms, and I'm not really thinking ahead to Beijing. I actually don't really care when I get to Beijing, and I'm very, very fortunate to, as far as I know, not have any limiting factors in terms of timescale. Mm. I think where my gaze is, is... It's the message that I'm trying to spread with this ride that for me, this is something I just wanted to do and I was felt very passionate about doing. And then it also then became this example, exemplification of the attitude I've tried to take forward that proactively creating your own opportunities, regardless of the situation that you find yourself in, regardless of the shit that life throws at you, is still possible you can still create your own opportunities to make that situation as good as it can be. So you can have the best life and the most rich and fulfilled life within that situation. Even if the ceiling is lowered, well, maybe you don't need to be crouching. Maybe you can stand, but with a bent back. Maybe that's a way of visualizing it. And for me, that's part of what I want to spread and share through doing this ride. And I think that's where my gaze lies of how can I do this most effectively through this podcast, through films, shooting a film, which is super exciting. Mm. Your eyes out, everyone. With a brilliant guy called Mike Rumsey, that is a plug, but he's awesome. And, um, and, and through writing and also my love-hate relationship with social media. So to me, that's where my gaze is, is sort of like on those things that form a lot of the purpose of the ride for me, I suppose, rather than getting to Beijing. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, considering the situation and I guess the nature of your ride as well. I, it was interesting you talked about the filming and the social media and the writing as well. And 
I was wondering how you feel about that. I mean, there, there are times where I definitely wish I could have had someone doing some filming of me uh, rather than having to set up the tripod, go back to your bike, cycle 10 metres past <laughs> it and then go and pick it up again. But then there were other times where I just felt like it was all a distraction and it was just completely unnecessary. And it just annoyed me that I felt that I had to post some photos on Instagram or had to write a blog or things like that. So I was wondering how you feel about that. Yeah, like what you're saying rings true so strongly. There are times and there still are times, particularly with social media, as anyone you know who knows me, like I find I have a real tension with it not because I dislike social media per se, but because the way it's been designed makes it very difficult to only spend a small amount of time on it. And that for me is the thing that I really object to that if I have Instagram on my phone, it becomes so easy to procrastinate. Oh, I'll just flick onto it. And then you spend 20 minutes. Whereas a book isn't designed like that. Like a book doesn't capture your attention. You can quite easily put it down. Of course, depending, you know, on who the author is and whether you're interested in the subject. So definitely there have been tensions in the past, like big tensions. And for me, it's made a huge difference. So like Mike coming out and doing filming. So I can just be me, mm. more or less, rather than going like, oh, okay, I've got to set this up. And that adds so much faff and friction to your day. When you're in the midst of doing a ride, you want to keep that momentum going. And then to go, oh, it's a really nice view. I'm not going to simply just enjoy it. I should be filming. That is, yeah. it isn't as pleasant. No, it's not. And I've, I've met travel bloggers on my trip who were constantly filming. And I, I did feel that it might detract a little bit from their experience. I mean, the, the stuff that they're producing was great. And it's great for the person watching it and the audience. And I can see why they do it. But I just feel like sometimes it detracts a little bit from, from the present. And I yeah. wondered if you found that. Well, the way that I've managed to reframe it, and so much of this, right, I think, in, you know, in our conversation has been about around perception and reframing the what's helped me is to be honest you know i'm a selfish guy i sort of in some ways don't care how much people are going to enjoy watching this because if it detracts from my life then i can't be asked to do it you know yeah that's simple in some ways but i also kind of wanted to somehow to sort of share what i'm doing and i feel like some of this the message is important the way that I've managed to reframe it so it feels worthwhile for me in the moment and not just I know it's going to be useful and help people six months down the line or whatever is by thinking well by forcing myself to write about these things it forces me to be more observant and engage with what I've seen and who I've met and put these impressions into sort of cogent thoughts and arguments and structures And the same with social media, like, okay, so I'm in this place. Well, if I was to sort of share Odessa with you and I could only share one photo, well, what actually captures Odessa? And so for me, it's using it as a prompt to try and get more out of the place that I'm in. And that's been the reason why I found I can actually engage with this because it gives me more, I suppose. So it's very selfish. It ties in with my own attitude of, I guess, enlightened self-interest. But if I can get something out of it, then I'm going to want to do more of it and I'm going to put more time and effort and energy into it. And it's probably going to be a better result. So to me, it's all about identifying this virtuous circle. That's a good way of looking at it. And it's the difference between mindlessly taking photos on your phone and just uploading everything to mm. actually thinking about what you're seeing. Um, I, I really enjoyed the writing. I'd never done much writing before I left. And then I started a blog and I just found it really mm. just 
completely new process to me. I'd come from a physics background. I was always quite analytical. Yeah. So to try and sort of come up with something new and, and interesting, I, I, I love that challenge. Oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, you get this license to be creative and, you know, I say biology, softer science, but, you know, all the mm. same, quite rigid and analytical in its outlook. You were going to write a book, right? Or you are writing a book about your experiences. I am writing a book. Yes. I mean, I'm no Paul Theroux, but um, I feel like it was something I wanted to do for, for myself as much as anything. I mean, you talk about what you just said. Yeah, for me, it was, it was I want to put this down into words. And if only my mum reads it, then fine. But, you know, if a lot of people do, then then great. And what are you hoping to get out of it by putting this down into into words? Firstly, so that I can remember it in the future. Secondly, I think also a bit of closure on, on that part mm. of my life. It was an interesting thing that during the ride, it was such a big thing that I'd done that I felt like it was going to define me for quite a while. Actually, I was staying with a guy, Dave Mills, who'd walked to the World Cup in Russia, across Europe. Wow. And um, he's an ex-army guy. And, and he gave me some really good advice to say, basically, you know, I know a lot of army people who are the same, that they define themselves by their army existence after they come out and therefore can't really move on from that. And it's not quite as big a thing, of course, um, just going on a, a bike ride, but there's the same danger that you kind of let it be your defining thing. Whereas really, I kind of want to put a bit of closure to that, write the book, say, okay, that's that part of my life and then move on to the next adventure. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a, an element of wanting to close that chapter, if you pardon the pun. <laughs> I think that's really interesting what you're saying about defining oneself and moving beyond it and not being limited in how you, you see yourself. And I'm going to be very interested to see what I, how I feel in whenever I get to Beijing. But Well, yeah. that was going to be my question, actually. Is how do you feel about Beijing at the moment? Or is it impossibly far away? Um, I don't really think about Beijing very much. It is such a long way away in a physical sense, but also... I have no idea what adventures I'll have uh, along the way, how I'll be feeling. You know, will I be absolutely sick of the whole thing? Will I still have interest in doing perhaps more? Yeah, it's not really a focus. As far as I try generally now to be quite not thinking too far ahead and just sort of focus on what I'm doing today and enjoy today because that's what's in front of you, I suppose. Um, and if you forget to enjoy today or make the most of today, then you've, you're missing out on the only bit that matters. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's really important, actually. I, there were certainly times in, in my ride that I just had to remind myself, hold on, every day I get to ride my bike and sleep mm. in my tent. This is like the dream life. I should be happy with this. Yeah. Mm. So it's a good thing to just to remember that. And I think it is something that I have in the back of my mind, you know, when I was cycling into these headwinds in, in Ukraine and like, it's not what I had in my mind initially. Mostly it was this sort of self-pity and anger. But when I started to change my mindset, it was like, you know, I could be in hospital right now. When I was in hospital, I would have given anything at all to be in this situation. And yet I'm in this situation and I'm basically moaning. Yeah. And I guess I'm quite fortunate in that way to have such a powerful visceral reminder because I have been there. But the ultimate part of that is like we could be dead and anything is better than that. And I guess depending on how strongly each individual feels that that can be like more of a potent prompt to go. I'm still alive. This is this is great. Yeah. This is 
incredible, even if I'm just sitting down at my desk and writing papers. I'm alive. It's the ultimate motivator, isn't it? Yeah. So I've got to ask, Josh, talking about finishing the ride, gaining closure through writing a book. I am fascinated that you're now working a nine to five job back in the UK. You've done this incredible adventure. And as I see myself getting to Beijing, just can't imagine going back to a nine to five. What led you in this direction and how does it feel? Is this what you expected? It's a strange one. I think by the end of the ride, I really was ready to finish, actually, which has surprised me. But when I was cycling around China, just the the uncomfortableness didn't appear anymore. I remember I, I was reading a Murakami book and he's the, the character washes his sheets on a Saturday morning. And I thought, well, that just sounds great. Something mundane like that. Waking up in the morning and doing some washing. That's where I want my life to be at the moment, which is, just goes to show the grass is always greener. <laughs> and but being honest with w- yourself, I would have thought it could be like, no, you're sort of tempted by it. And you're like, but no, that's not. I think after. if I hadn't done the cycle through Russia, I would have felt the same. But because I'd done that, something that was so challenging for me. I just felt like I, I had nothing more to prove. So I was quite happy to finish. So I'm, I was starting to miss things that I hadn't missed during the ride. I really wanted a fry up. I missed cricket, which was really strange. I mean, I'm not a massive cricket fan, but perhaps because it's so quintessentially English that I thought, well, I just want to go home and play some cricket. So it meant by the time I got to Beijing, I was quite happy to finish, actually. And then I came home and it took me a while to adjust, to be perfectly honest to being back. There were a few things that I'd noticed. I, I couldn't really sleep very well in a bed. Um, <laughs> occasionally I would get my tent out and just go and camp in the garden, <laughs> which is slightly strange. And it, it's taken me, you know, sort of six months, almost longer to, to get back to sleeping properly in a bed again, six which um, to in a bed. which surprised me. Yeah. yeah. Um, there were some physical things. I mean, my posture was kind of terrible because I'd been hunched over a bike. I'd lost... A serious amount of weight all because, those games you know, just gone. yeah exactly all of them gone one strange thing was i'd kind of forgotten how to make conversation because i'd been used to being in foreign countries where people didn't speak english very fluently or i couldn't communicate to them the other thing was i'd been used to being the one answering the questions so i would always get someone people would say oh so wow where have you come from what are you doing where did mm-hmm. you go brother and then you meet a mate for a pint and you know that's not that important because they know what you've done anyway and suddenly i forgot how to make conversation i would sit in the pub with some friends just completely silent which waiting for people really to strange. ask you questions <laughs> yeah exactly because i just got used to mm. waiting for that to happen so, so interesting I didn't notice all these things until I'd got back, of course. So there was quite a bit of an adjustment. I mean, I was doing some writing and then working three days a week, which was kind of that good middle ground between the two. But now I've moved to Leeds and I've started this job at the NHS a few months ago. And it's weird, I guess, from the outside looking in, it does seem like I've got a settled life. But my mentality is not like that at all. I'm still thinking, you know, I had a lot planned for 2020 in terms of trips, in terms of going out to Central Asia. I wanted to see the Pamirs again. I I was going to help out with the Silk Road Mountain Race, which is the bike race out there. And that's still all in my mind. I still feel like that's still going to happen at some point. So it doesn't feel like I've gone back into a settled normal life, even if my lifestyle from the outside looking in would appear to be like. And then tell us where 
your future aspirations go you know if it's not defined by your current job as a data analyst for the nhs and doing an amazing job trying to work out what the covid virus is doing and where are your aspirations and in the future well i think taking a two-year trip is just not really going to happen anymore i think i wouldn't want to do anything for that period of time i'm quite content with say a month or two months trips somewhere so that's kind of how i see myself is working through the winter and then going on trips during the summer there's various writing projects i'd like to do in certain countries i'd like to get into filming a bit more and doing some documentaries or you know filming about cycling i've got a friend who leads guided tours through kyrgyzstan walking and that sounds great um so that's kind of where i see the future is kind of that that balance of the two i don't know how feasible it is but do really exciting things in summer and um, work as a data analyst during the winter right Josh, we've got to wrap up, but I wanted to give you a chance if you wanted to ask any final questions, because I know I've put you um, you know, in the hot seat for much of this, but I've enjoyed it when you've turned it round. Well, a few, a few small ones. What, what do you miss the most at the moment from home? Oh, this is another great question. Um, what do I miss? God, that's really difficult. I don't feel like at this point in time, I don't really feel like I'm missing very much. Obviously, it would be lovely to see my friends and my family in person. But I mean, it's easy to say is a to, to cop out. But it's also true that that wouldn't even happen if I was back in the UK. Oat cakes. Oat cakes. All yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what I miss I'll, the I'll most. Send a, I'll send a parcel out. <laughs> I will be very happy to receive it. <laughs> I'd be really interested to ask a lot of these questions again in about mm. a year's time to see where you are actually because I mean I, I mentioned already that my mentality changed quite a lot mm. during the ride and I'd be really interested to see I think at the similar stage when I was in Europe I wasn't missing too much mm. but then by the time I got to Mongolia a bowl of shreddies seemed like the biggest luxury in the world yeah <laughs> yeah so um okay fair enough I guess what has been the best country so far best country so far um or best place? Ooh. If I can give two answers, I would say I thought Belgrade was amazing. I had a fantastic time there. As a capital, there was just so much going on. Totally blew my mind. My parents went there seven years ago and they said it was ugly and was full of like, you know, communist era apartment blocks. And I went there and I was like, oh my God, this place is on fire. Like there are bars and disco boats like floating on the Danube. There's this crazy mix of architecture. There's beautiful parks. There's great cafes. It seemed to have so much going on. Like you could be exploring this city for a year or a decade and you'd still find new stuff. So that would be my city. And I have to say Moldova and for the people and the huge credit to someone called Jane Ebel, who has this incredible web of contacts right the way through the country. And she opened so many doors and I met some people who were just changing in a small way and important ways, our local lives and communities and seeing what these people were doing with very little support because they were passionate about it and because they believed in what they were doing that changed my experience of the country and also my desire of what I wanted to get out of future countries that I passed through. So those are my two answers, if I'm allowed to. Very good answers. Completely agree on Belgrade. Great city. I haven't been through Moldova, 
So now that's being added to the list. Yeah. <laughs> so Josh, it's been an absolutely wonderful conversation. I've massively enjoyed it. I feel that there probably does need to be a follow-up one when I've got to Beijing and perhaps by that point you're going to be out in Kyrgyzstan or something from the sounds of it. As you know, every guest I ask the three things that are the most important to them. So most uh, important place, most important or favorite piece of music and book. And I'm very interested to hear yours because I'm kind of expecting maybe they're slightly related to the ride and that might give me some hints of what I should be listening to and reading on route and where I should be visiting indeed. So your favorite place. Favorite Josh. place would have to be Kamchatka, the Kamchatkan Peninsula in the far, far northeast of Russia. I was very fortunate when I um, arrived to South Korea for my second Christmas on the road. I took a break and left my bike in Seoul and went up to Kamchatka to visit a friend there. It's an amazing place. It's volcanic, but really cold as well. So you've got snow-capped volcanoes that we went snowmobiling up. There's bears, wow. there's fish, there's um, caviar, there's amazing food. A completely different place to anywhere else I've been before. An absolute wilderness further up in the north. So Kamchatka, 100% wow. favorite place. Chosen somewhere easy to yeah, get to, haven't you? <laughs> good luck getting I'll there. add on a 5,000-mile detour or something. Damn you. <laughs> um, piece of music. Again, this is related to the ride. I was introduced to a band called Kino when I was in Russia, who you might know. Victor Tsoy mm-hmm. is kind of like the Kurt Cobain of Russia. He died when he was 27, 28, something like that. And I listened to a lot of this Russian rock band, Kino. Um, if I had to choose a song, it would probably be Zvezda Paimini Sonce, a star called the sun, which mm-hmm. is just a, a good song about the sort of folly of man, I guess. You know, the sun is always shining for 2,000 years and we, or longer. And no matter what we do, it will always still be there. And then a and book. Your book. My book is A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush by Eric Nibi. Oh. It's not a particularly long book. It's not an epic. But it's just a great story of a slightly bumbling Englishman who attempts to climb this unclimbed mountain in the Hindu Kush in Afghanistan in the 50s. And it's wow. a great story of just doing something, no matter what the pre- how little preparation you've done, and just giving it a go and coming back with a great story. So, yeah, that would be my book. I love it. I'm going to read that. I'm going to add it onto my Kindle after this. <laughs> Thoroughly recommend it. Um, Josh, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting. Thank you so much for being on this special Christmas edition of Facing Up. You're welcome. And that was my conversation with Josh Day. Thank you so much, Josh. And thank you to listening to this very special Christmas edition of the Facing Up podcast. I really hope that you've enjoyed this series. If you haven't listened to the first series, then do check it out. And from the banks of the Bosphorus in Istanbul, I wish you all a very happy Christmas.